What's it like to be the latest author anointed by Oprah for her book club? Tayari Jones will join us to talk about her new novel, An American Marriage. What were the secret lives of Jackie Onassis, her sister Lee Radziwill, and their mother, Janet Auchincloss, like? J. Randy Tarabarelli, author of Jackie, Janet, and Lee, will be here to tell us all. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Tyree Jones joins us now. Her latest book is called An American Marriage, a novel. It's her fourth novel and the latest pick from the Oprah Book Club. Terry joins us from Washington, where she's on book tour. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you. So this is very exciting. I want to get to all of the Oprah-ness going on, which is, (laughs) (laughs) I imagine, uh, a great experience. But let's start with the book itself. What is this novel about? An American Marriage is the story of a young couple who's only been married 18 months. You know, she says, I was still combing the rice from my hair when her husband is arrested and imprisoned for a crime he doesn't commit. He's given a 12-year sentence, and they've only been married 18 months. And your two characters are Celestial and Roy. Tell us a little bit about them and sort of where they, how they got into this marriage and, and then how he got into those circumstances. Well, Roy is kind of like the walking embodiment of both the American dream and the New South. Mm -hmm. He was born in a small town in Louisiana and, you know, benefited from Head Start, Upward Bound, all these different programs, and he's gone to college and he has made good for himself. And part of his making good is that he is married. He's married this woman who's from one of Atlanta's kind of upper-class families, And he feels like he's punching above his weight a little bit, but Mm -hmm. he feels like the world is in the palm of his hand. And Celestial is that woman, and her, she is kind of an eccentric. She's an artist. She's beautiful. She's smart. And she also feels like the world is in the palm of her hand because her artwork is being shown in all the right places. They're kind of, I think, in many ways, kind of a classic couple, you know? Like, they fight a lot. They love a lot. And they're very young, and they are very optimistic. There's a a larger story here and then a very specific story, I imagine, to how he ends up wrongfully convicted of a crime. He is simply misidentified. He didn't do it, and the victim believes that it is him. And this happens a lot more than we would think. The ways that victims are questioned can steer them in the direction of the suspect that the police like for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And I didn't dwell that much on the details of the crime of which he's accused because I didn't want our attention to turn away from this American marriage at the center of the story. Those wrongful convictions do happen disproportionately to African-Americans. That was part... Oh, outrageously disproportionately. I know there's an interesting kind of backstory to how you came to this subject. Did you want to write a book that touched on mass incarceration? You know, I sometimes think that the journey in this book was that I started writing, trying to write a novel about mass incarceration. I wrote a fellowship application to the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. I was accepted and I had access to all the libraries in the world to do all this research on the subject of incarceration. And I was just outraged and furious, um, but I wasn't inspired. 
And I finally came to understand that the key was to not try and write about mass incarceration, but to write about a single incarceration and hope that the conversation about a single incarceration would help us think more about mass incarceration. What happened when you tried to write that novel about mass incarceration? It, was, it wasn't working. It was almost like I was trying to set the new Jim Crow to music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the new Jim Crow will never be a musical. And I was really frustrated with myself. I thought that maybe I wasn't a good enough writer to engage something so topical. Or maybe as a writer, I wasn't good when I wasn't doing autobiography. You know, I've never been in prison. But I went home to Atlanta to visit my mother. And when I was down there, I overheard a couple arguing in the mall, in the food court. The woman was very beautiful and glamorous. She did not look like the kind of person to argue with her man in the food court. And she said, Roy, you know you would not have waited on me for seven years. And he said back, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And I was intrigued because I didn't know him, but I did feel fairly confident that he wouldn't have waited on her for seven years. And I didn't know her, but I did think that what he was facing was probably something that would not have happened to her. And I know that I have found my novel when both my characters have a good point. What were those points for your two characters, for Roy and Celestial? Well, Celestial is, you know, about 25 years old at the time, and she is asked to put her dreams on hold because of what has happened to her husband, that he has been incarcerated and therefore she should also be, I won't say that she's asked to be incarcerated too, because there is no comparison between someone living in the world and someone living in prison, but she cannot be forgiven for still having the same dreams she had as before. And she does wonder if the tables were turned, would, would it have been reciprocated? But he feels like these tables don't turn. Mm-hmm. So why are we talking about turning a table that doesn't swivel? One of the interesting choices you make in the book, which, as you said, is about one wrongful incarceration, is your choice of sort of the the area of African-American society that Celestial and Roy occupy. They are not in the inner city. They are not poor. They are not uneducated. These are people who have done everything right, right? Who have a huge amount of hope and possibility in front of them. Did you deliberately sort of choose to write about middle-class African-American life in the, in the New South? Well, for one thing, you know, that is my world. Mm-hmm. Like Celestial and Roy, she graduated from Spelman College, historically black women's college, and Roy graduated from Morehouse, the men's college. And, you know, I'm a graduate of Spelman College, and so that is a world that I really know well. And even though people in this demographic are not kind of at ground zero of mass incarceration, I do think that part of black middle-class culture is the feeling that it could all be taken away from you in an instant, that something will happen and the only relevant detail will be your race. And your education won't matter. Your job won't matter. Nothing matters. And so that fear, I mean, I've always known that fear as a undercurrent all my life. And so in this novel, I think I just kind of 
stared it in the face and asked, what if it really happened? Then what? Was that hard for you to imagine? You know, I felt almost like it was hard for me to start. It's, have you ever been afraid, like you're in your house and you hear a noise and you're afraid and you finally go look and just peeking around that corner, you're so terrified. The, the act of looking is as scary as what you see. Yes. And I think that's how I felt. I was mm-hmm. afraid to look around that corner to write the story. Let's talk about the title because you choose to, not to call it an incarceration or an American incarceration um, or an American crime, but an American marriage. What's the story behind the title? The marriage part was easy for me because it was imperative for me that the story that readers focus on the marriage. I feel that I feel like my characters are more than just their suffering. And to put your eye on the marriage reminds us that this is a couple, two young people trying to make their life together like any other young couple that wants to make a life. The hard word for me in the title was American, actually, because I have never understood myself. I've never been referred to as American without black or African before it. I mean, even when I travel abroad, I will sometimes hear the people say, Here, here's the American that was here. I told you there was an American here, and she was black. So to use that title was kind of fraught, but my editor really liked it. And I said to him, I said, Chuck, I feel like an American marriage sounds like a novel about some white people in Connecticut having <laughs> a feeling. And he's a very sober man, and he said, well... Connecticut is a very small state. Why would you think that what takes place in Connecticut is more American than what happens in Atlanta? There are more people in Atlanta than the whole state of Connecticut. And I was really kind of thrown by that because just his matter-of-factness. And so I thought it over, and then I said, well, maybe. And then he said, tell me this. He said, are you afraid that your book Are you afraid to claim big ideas? Because the title, An American Marriage, sounds like it's a book of big ideas. And are you afraid of that? Do you think your book can't bear the weight of the title? And and I had to really think about it. Was was this some weird gendered thing where, as a woman, I didn't want to claim to have tried to write a big book? Right. So all of that. And so I looked him in the eye. We were on the phone, but I looked him in the eye in my mind, Mm -hmm. and I said to him, let me call you back. And so I thought about it for the weekend. And then that Monday, I just decided that it was time for me to be a grown woman about this and claim what I've done. And so I said, let's do the title. And it feels like a big book. Was that nerve wracking once you'd committed to it and said, okay, it is an American marriage. It's got a very striking cover. You're taking on big issues. How did that feel? I was proud of myself, but you know, a number of people because before the book is out, everyone feels like the title, the cover, everything is provisional, so they want to weigh in on it. Mm-hmm. I think it's almost like if you have a kid and you're coming up with names for your kid, everyone has an opinion on it. But once the child is here with that particular name, then that name is that child. I think that's the same for the book. So when it was still in flux, like my mother said to me, she called me, my mother's a very proper lady, and she says to me, I'm not captivated by the title like, thanks, mom. Really? But, <laughs> yes. She said, just like, I'm not captivated by the title. And I felt really bad and worried about it. And then I explained to her why 
I had chosen it. And she says, well, then I feel better. I was like, great, that's, that's fantastic, Mom. But I did feel worried because no one really was in favor of it. For the reasons that I had apprehension about it, others had apprehension about it. But now that it's here, everyone loves it. So, right. I was gonna so say, I'm happy. It's, now it's paid off. But before we talk about the big payoff, which is Oprah and all oh, of the yes, great Oprah. reviews, I want to just go back to something your editor said about Connecticut versus Atlanta, because this is also a novel of the South and of the New South in particular. And I'm interested in why you chose to set the book there. Well, you know, I am a daughter of the South. I'm a, I'm born in Atlanta. I'm raised in Atlanta, educated in Atlanta. I'm a member of the Fellowship of Southern Writers. And it's very important to me to claim the South because even though a lot of my a lot of my Southern writing colleagues, particularly my white Southern writing colleagues, they feel like they have been pigeonholed as Southern writers and they want to be free of that regional designation. But as for me, I feel that as a black writer, I have been denied my identity as mm-hmm. a Southern writer. So I'm trying to get in that door. It's, it's my home. You know, I was born there. My parents were born there. My grandparents were born there. You know, we have been in the South for generations. And it's very important to me that, one, to lay claim to that heritage. But also, I do think that so many people don't understand Southern literature as a modern literature. Well, there was recently, as you know, Jasmine Ward's Sing Unburied Sing, which continues her look also at the African-American South. I'm sure there are, there are others. Yes, we are many. We are multitudes. But it, I just feel like so many people's understanding of Southern literature is stuck at Faulkner or something involving the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I live in Brooklyn, and I tell people I'm from Georgia, and they act like I got up here, you know, on the Underground Railroad. <laughs> I just we have to um, we have to change this narrative. All right, let's talk about the the very exciting thing that we've mentioned a couple times already, which is Oprah. You get a phone call from Oprah. What was that like? Okay, so here I am minding my business, driving the car, and you know how you have the phone connected to your car stereo, right? So it was ringing, and it's an unfamiliar car to me. So I pushed the button to try to answer it, and I say, "Hello, hello." And a voice that I would know anywhere says, (laughs) hi, this is Oprah. And I think that Oprah Winfrey is very accustomed to people losing their minds when she calls them. So she patiently waits. I imagine her on the other end, like filing her nails while I went through all the emotions in the world. (laughs) And then I think I had used up my emotion time because she is a busy woman. And she's like, okay. (laughs) She said, okay. And she said that she wanted to use an American marriage for her book club. And would I like that? And I said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. What was going through your mind when during that silent period? And and like, were you worried about getting in a car crash? I pulled over. Mm -hmm. I'm a very responsible person. (laughs) I pulled over. But the funny thing is, while Oprah was explaining to me why she had chosen the book, um, panhandlers were like tapping on my window asking for money. And I was shooing them away. And Oprah is just speaking through the stereo saying all these really wonderful, eloquent things, and I'm just shooing people. Oh, it was crazy. It's like occupying two very different worlds simultaneously. I would have just given them the money if they could have waited, you know? Yeah. I just needed a moment. What did Oprah say to you? What were those meaningful words? Well, she said that she had received the book in manuscript pages, I believe, and that she had shared it with the um, young ladies at her school in South Africa. 
and that they were arguing over, you know, the characters, like which was a better man for Celestial, you know, and what, who should do what and what are our obligations. I was just, I was delighted that she chose to share it with them and that it connected. Is your mom good with the title now? Yes, everyone's good with everything. <laughs> this has been the wonderful thing about this book. Everyone has been so supportive. Like in Atlanta, my third grade teacher came to my book event and she had a whole carton of books. I hope you signed all of them. I did. I Every single one to every one of her relatives. I was. It was my pleasure. Well, Tayari, thank you so much. Congratulations again on everything. Thank you. Tayari Jones' most recent book is called An American Marriage. J. Randy Tarborelli is the author of nearly 20 biographies, three of them about the Kennedys and Jackie Onassis in particular. His latest book is called Jackie, Janet, and Lee, The Secret Lives of Janet Auchincloss and Her Daughters, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and Lee Radziwill. Randy joins us from L.A. Hi, Randy. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So this you've written two other books about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis um, and her circle, one of them, Jackie Ethel Joan, Women of Camelot, and the other, After Camelot, A Personal History of the Kennedy Family, 1968 to the Present. This is your third book. Why do you keep coming back to that subject? Well, the other two books, which I enjoyed immensely, took a look at Jackie through the prism of the Kennedys. And in the context of being a Kennedy, uh, being married to President Kennedy, having his children, and then, you know, how she dealt with the tragedy of his assassination and then going on with her life and building a life for herself and her, and her children. But within the Kennedy family, even after JFK was assassinated, Jackie continued to have very strong ties to the Kennedys, as I wrote in those books. What I wanted to do with this book, with my new book, Jackie, Janet, and Lee, is to take a look at Jackie through the prism of her own family, mm-hmm. the other side of the story. In fact, the original subtitle of this book I had in mind was The Other Side of Camelot, because in in many ways it felt that way to me as I was researching this project. Jackie was a, she had a full and interesting life long before she met Senator Kennedy in the 1950s. And that was the result of the way she was brought up by her mom, Janet Auchincloss, and the influence of her sister, Lee Radziwill. And also the main characters in this book include Jamie Auchincloss, who is her half-brother, mm-hmm. Janet Jr. Auchincloss, her half-sister, Hugh Auchincloss, her stepfather, and Jack Bouvier, her father. So these are people that I've never written about before. And I know that my readers know very little about because nothing has ever been done like this previously. And for me to be able to tell this story that's not been told before. It's just a great opportunity as a writer. So one would think after having written two books about Jackie Onassis, you had a pretty good sense of who she was. Did doing the research for this book surprise you? Did you learn a side of her that you hadn't known about before? Did it explain things that you previously hadn't understood? It explained so much to me that I hadn't understood. For instance, I have done a lot of research in the area of Jackie and Aristotle Onassis and their relationship. And people have often taken a sort of a pejorative view of that relationship and believe that it was you know, primarily based on Onassis' finances and 
I just found that there was so much more to it than that. Mm-hmm. When I was researching this book, I really began to understand the reasons for her connection to Onassis and that she was suffering so greatly from PTSD after the death of Bobby Kennedy and, the, and then the previous death of her husband, that she made some decisions that her mom thought she was not in her right mind in making. And a lot of it was driven by shock and emotional upset mm-hmm. and, you know, and just trying to survive and trying to protect her children. And so I, I just learned so much. And, and also I, I wanted to really get into Janet Auchincloss's uh, latter days mm-hmm. uh, because I knew that she had suffered from Alzheimer's and I didn't know much about what was going on in her life at that time. And I found that Jackie was her primary caretaker during these years. And I had no idea about any of that. And also that Jackie had accused Janet Auchincloss's third husband, being a Morris, of elder abuse. And that she was a lioness in protecting her mother from this, from this man that her mom had married while she had Alzheimer's. It's a, it's a very complicated but kind of emotionally intense story that I knew nothing about prior to researching this book. Well, let's start with Janet Auchincloss and before her daughters, before she's married. Where did she grow up? What was her own childhood like and what kind of woman was she? She was uh, such an incredible woman in so many ways. I mean, she, you know, she grew up in New York and she, she was from an entitled family, but you know, her, her father was very domineering and he wasn't, he wasn't kind to her or to her mom or to her grandmother. And, you know, she married Jack Bouvier at the age of 19. And this is a man that her father did not approve of. He was, he was wealthy at times. And then at, at times he didn't have money. He, this man, Jack Bouvier, that, Jet, that Janet married was somebody that Janet had a very strong chemistry with, a physical chemistry with. And this relationship lasted much longer than it should have because mm-hmm. he was unfaithful to her throughout their entire marriage. But, you know, she was a, a woman who really en- enjoyed physical intimacy with the man during a period of, <laughs> in our culture where, not, where a lot of women were afraid to admit as much back in the 1940s. And she wasn't afraid to admit it. And, mm-hmm. and, and she would later admit that that's what kept her in that relationship with Jackie and Lee's father far longer than she should have been in it. But, you know, eventually she pulled herself together and she defied her own father who, who would not accept her being divorced because of their religion. And she defied her dad and she went on to divorce Jack Bouvier and eventually marry Hugh Auchincloss. And how old were Jackie and Lee when Janet and their father got divorced and, and then when she remarried? Uh, they were very young, you know. They they were, you know, in in, uh, in their early teens, mm-hmm. and you know they loved their dad. And it was very difficult for Janet because um, you know she had felt so emotionally abused by their father, but yet she also wanted them to have a relationship with their father. And it would be many years before Jackie and Lee were able to really understand what their mom went through and the sacrifices that their mom made for. For them, it would be many years, and they would be adults, and both having had marriages of their own that were troubled before they would really be able to understand the choices that their mom made when they were young girls. What kind of mother was Janet? Well, you know, I I, I spent a lot of time with Jamie Auchincloss, who was Janet's uh, only son, and also the half brother of Jackie and Lee, and 
I was able to get a real Iceland clear picture of the kind of woman she was, as well as the kind of mother that she was. And she, she was a real formidable presence in their lives. Uh, she was somebody who was thought to be overprotective, but you know, she really was a warrior for her children. And she wanted to make sure in, in particular that her daughters were taken care of. Because when she married Hugh Auchincloss, he made it very clear that his wealth, and he was a very wealthy man, would be going to his natural-born children when he died, not to Jackie and to Lee. So if they wanted to continue the privileged and titled lifestyle that they had growing up in the Auchincloss home, they would have to find a way to, to, to make it in the world without his money. And mm-hmm. so money and power became sort of the family mandate between Jackie, Janet, and Lee. And many people might look at that in not a very kind light, but I think that you have to understand that these women really wanted to find a way to take care of themselves and their families and to continue their lifestyles. Unfortunately, when that is your primary goal, money and power, it leads to a lot of trouble. And as you will find when you read the book, their relationships with men were you know, fraught with problems because money and power were at the core of what they were looking for. You mentioned that you spoke to Jackie and, and Lee's half-brother for this book. Who else talked? Because, of course, the Kennedys, at least the Kennedy side of the Kennedys, are sort of notorious for n- not talking. And I'm curious, did Lee agree to be interviewed for the book? No, Lee did not agree to be interviewed for the book. You know, she said that she she has said everything that she's wanted to say about these subjects. And, you know, and I have to say that I've seen a lot of interviews with Lee over the years, and I kind of know what her point of view is about these things. And I wanted to dig deeper than that. You know, I I, I had a lot of sources. I mean, I this is my third Kennedy book, as we discussed. And, and during the course of all that, you know, you develop a, sort of a legion of, of sources, you know, both within the family and people who've been touched by the family. But very important to my research was the uh, JFK Library and Museum Oral History Project. Any researcher can f- find, for instance, Janet Auchincloss's oral history at the JFK Library is very, very compelling, and it's very, it's quite lengthy as well. And you know, many of these people have uh, have passed on now, and the only way that researchers such as myself can actually get a handle on who they are often is to go to the presidential libraries and dig into their assets. And especially the JFK library uh, has been very helpful to me in three books now. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be able to, I just don't think I would be able to do the kind of work I do without them. Did people in their circle talk to you? Yeah, we talked to many people in their circle. Uh, You know, many people who worked for Janet Auchincloss for, for, for years. And then the children of those people, uh, went into their attics and, you know, <laughs> we came came back to us with, you know, photographs and, and diaries and, oh my, my gosh, so many people who worked for Janet Auchincloss had so many great memories of her uh, and their time working for her at Hammersmith Farm in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. One woman that we interviewed began working for Janet on the day before Jackie and Jack's wedding. She was a Kelly girl, which was a temporary secretarial service and Janet hired her on the day before JFK and Jackie married and she stayed with her for almost 35 years so you know these kinds of people who had that kind of access 
are just so invaluable. What was the relationship like between Jackie and Lee? Were they close? Were they competitive? Did they always get along? I know it was somewhat fraught. Well, many people have asked me about the relationship between Jackie and Lee, obviously. And it's really not easy to paint with a wide brush stroke because, like, you know, like all of our relationships with our siblings, it's complicated, you know. And many times it's, well, it's different at different points along the way. You know, when they, when they were young, for instance, uh, they were very, very close. But a competition was fostered between them inadvertently by their mom who, when they were very young girls, would sit down with the two girls and say, you know, I, I don't approve of competition between you. I want you to always be there for each other. You're all that you'll ever have in this world, and so you need to be a strong support system for each other. And then after she would give them that little talk, she would take Jackie by the hand and go off shopping with her, leaving poor little Lee behind. Mm. And, and that planted, I think, in Lee's head at a very early age a sense of competition with her sister, because Jackie was never competitive with Lee. It was always Lee's competition with Jackie. But I also have to say that it's because of this competition that Lee sort of parlayed this competition in a way into the most exciting life. I mean, she did so much under the umbrella of trying to distinguish herself from her sister. She ended up having a life that I think was much more, I guess, exciting than her sisters, um, maybe in some ways more satisfying than her sisters, because Lee was, you know, she was an interior decorator, she was, an, uh, she was a, a model, she was a fashion designer, she was an author, she was a producer, she was an actress, she, she appeared on stage, she was on television. I mean, she did it all, you know, and, and I think that a lot of that had to do with wanting to distinguish herself, but the upside to that sort of that need to to I, have her own identity was that she really did. <laughs> she mm-hmm. really did have her own identity and a huge, in a huge way. There's lots of gossip in this book, lots of sort of juicy anecdotes and inside stories. So I'm sure it's incredibly difficult to, to pick out sort of your favorite or the most surprising, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. So, <laughs> uh, and, and, and maybe the best way to do that is, is to sort of go woman by woman among these three. What was the sort of the best story you came across about Janet Auchincloss that you hadn't known previously or wasn't widely known? There, there, there's, wow, it's just so much. I mean, it's such a long story, you know. I mean, I covered 80 years of her life. I think what really, I really think what surprised me was, you know, that she had, as I mentioned earlier, this physical relationship with Jackie and Lee's father, Jack Bouvier, that she prized so much. And when she met Hugh Auchincloss, who was very wealthy, he made it very clear to her that he was chronically impotent. And that he, this was something that he had accepted in his life. And that he had made a decision in his life that he was not going to have sexual relations with any woman ever again. And this was, you know, many people in Janice's circle said, well, who cares about this? You mm-hmm. know? I mean, this is not something that you should care about. He's very wealthy and you've had your children and why don't you just not worry about this? What surprised me was that this was something that did concern her. You know, that as a woman, she felt that she deserved to have a full life. Janet Auchincloss was a woman who would never accept limitations, and she couldn't understand why Hugh had accepted this particular limitation in his own life. And she said, you know, you need to get some help for this. You, 
there, there, there are ways to, to work with this. And this kind of conversation is not easy to have back in the 1940s, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so I, I really had a lot of admiration for that when I heard that, you know, she was the kind of person who just would not accept any limitation. And she always felt that there was another way and, and that it was her responsibility, you know, to find that way for herself and her children. So that's my, that's sort of a little bit of a Janet Auchincloss, you know, uh, psychology that I certainly didn't know about. Where Jackie is concerned, what really surprised me most was her relationship with Jack Warnicky, who was the architect that she hired to design JFK's memorial at Arlington. Now, I had interviewed Jack Warnicky for After Camelot, but I wasn't able to write as much about his relationship with Jackie in that book as I was in this present book, because that book was so much about the Kennedys and there just wasn't enough room. In this book, I really explored Jackie's relationship with Jack Warnicky, which happened between 1964 and 1967. And it's amazing to me that the public never knew about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it just it just shows you that even people who are so high profile, like the Kennedys, were able to have private lives that the public just did not know about. Because Jackie and Jack Warnicky were very serious with each other for three years. I interviewed Jack, as I told you, and also I interviewed his children and his co-workers and the people in his life who told me about his relationship with Jackie and how much he really loved her and, and how great they were together. And it's, a, it's an interesting story because even though she ultimately chose Aristotle Onassis over Jack Warnicky, he remained a very important part of her life. And as you read in the book, at the end of her life, which is at the end of my book, he is, he is still there and having conversations with her about how she's dealing with the cancer that would ultimately take her life. So this is a relationship that spanned a good 35 years of Jackie Kennedy Onassis's life that the public really did not know about, which, mm-hmm. which is astonishing. And where Lee Radzewell is concerned, I think she's the most misunderstood of the, of the three women. Lee is, you know, she... I think it's because no one's ever written about her that she has a reputation of sort of being a more, more of a trophy wife type or mm-hmm. somebody who's been more mercenary in her decisions or somebody who's not really taken seriously. And that is so not true of Lee Radzewell. What I found in my research is that of the three, she was the idealistic one. She is the moral sort of center of my story. She is the woman who didn't want to marry for money and power, who constantly went up against her mother and her sister, who was always telling them that there's more to a relationship than finances. Now, because Lee felt that way, she had, you know, she had difficulty, financial difficulties for much of her life, which is why she had to work so hard, you know, because she made choices in, in, in her relationships that were not based on money and power, mm-hmm. that, that were based on something that, that, were, that, that was deeper. And her first husband, Michael Canfield, had no money. Her second husband, the prince, she, when he died, he left her with no money. Hmm. You know, she, so she, and then she ended up with a, a, a fantastic photographer named Peter Beard, who also had no money. I mean, Lee spent a lot of time trying to make ends meet because she did not sort of toe the family line of money and power. And and I, and I think that people will love her when they read my book. I've been on tour now for 
a few weeks, and what I get from people when they read the book is how much they admire Lee Radswell and the decisions that she made and the tough, really, really tough road that she had in going up against her family when it came to her personal choices. She did it her way. She lived her life exactly the way she wanted to live it. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Well, we could have a whole other conversation about sort of what it is about the Kennedys and about Jackie Onassis that so fascinates people all these years later. But I will end with a, a slightly more specific question, which is what draws you to these people and their lives and sort of draws you to, to continue writing about them? Thank you for asking, because I'm actually working, I'm working on my next Kennedy book right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's coming out in two years, and it's the Kennedys, the next generation. And it's, it's basically, it's the children of JFK, Bobby, and Ted, and then it's also their children. So it's, it spans a lot of history. And I'll tell you, what, what keeps me coming back to this subject is, is just the sheer humanity of it all. You know, I love the fact that these powerful people, many of whom I've met, I've met Jackie Kennedy Onassis in my lifetime when she was working at Doubleday and I was an author there. I met Ted Kennedy. I mean, I've met these people and, and I have always admired the fact that unlike perhaps British royalty, there's not the, the, a wall between the Kennedys and their, and their public. You know, they're, I think maybe it's because they've made so many mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it has to do with, you know, the, the tragedy of their lives. And even though I don't believe in the so-called Kennedy curse, it's definitely true that they have had such misfortune that, you know, when they have overcome each and every one, it inspires all of us, I think, to take a look at our own lives and and see what we can do to just, you know, be better people and to, and to survive what, whatever is thrown our way. And every Kennedy book that I've written about has that same theme, which is that these, see, I'm not a political writer. After Camelot, the subtitle of After Camelot is a personal history of the Kennedy family for a specific reason. I'm, I'm not a political writer. I, I write about families mm -hmm. and I write about what happens after they get home from the political speech, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I write about what happens when, you know, when, when they're out of the, out of office, when, you know, when they have to deal with each other on a personal level, that's what I specialize in. And certainly the Kennedy family gives a, a biographer such as myself so much great material to work with. And we learn, I think we learn so much from other people's stories. I'm not interested in celebrities. I'm really not interested in celebrities. So I think that when you're able to find people who are famous, who have great stories to tell that don't have to do with being celebrities, that for me is golden opportunity. Well, as the subtitle of your book says, The Secret Lives of Janet Auchincloss and her daughters, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and Lee Radswell. Randy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The book again is called Jackie, Janet and Lee, and it's by J. Randy Taraborelli. Alexandra Alter joins us now with news from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new? 
Well, uh, there's an interesting story that I've been following for several months about a writer, a debut author named Curtis Dawkins. And I wrote about him last summer when his short story collection was published, and it's titled The Gray Bar Hotel. It mostly is set in prisons and jails. And Mr. Dawkins himself is serving a life sentence for murder in Michigan. It's a life sentence without parole. You know, it's very unusual for him to get a short story collection published by, you know, one of the top literary publishing houses in the country, no less. It was Scribner that published it. So I went to visit him in prison and heard a little bit about his backstory, how he'd gotten his MFA and had always wanted to be a writer and then had these addiction issues. And those sort of culminated and ultimately led to this tragic murder that he committed one night in Kalamazoo, Michigan, when he was high on crack. And he's been in prison now for nearly 13 years. So after I wrote about the book, it got some attention locally. The Detroit News wrote a piece about him, and it kind of raised the question of whether he should be celebrated as a writer given his dark past because the crime that he committed was, you know, extremely horrific. He not only murdered somebody, he took a hostage. You know, it led to a six-person SWAT team coming in. He had a big standoff. And, you know, some people felt, given his dark past, should he really be celebrated and also compensated, he got a a six-figure book deal. He got $150,000, which is a lot of money for a debut short story collection, and particularly a lot for someone in his position. So the, the update that I heard from his family recently is that he is now being sued by the state of Michigan to pay for the cost of his own incarceration. Although he's put the money into an account for his kid's education, he has three children, he put it into an LLC, and none of the money has gone to him. It's all gone to their school tuition and things like that. The state has a law that allows them to essentially get reimbursed for the cost of incarceration if a prisoner comes into any kind of fortune. So this is playing out now. He's still in prison and he's still writing. He's working on a novel now. But his literary agent has cut off all payments from the publisher to him. Mm. And his prison account has been frozen. That's an account that prisoners have where they can buy snacks and families can deposit money. So, you know, it has affected him. He said it's been hard for him to buy paper for his typewriter and things like that. And it it turns out this is an issue that a lot of prisoners face. But his his situation is somewhat unique because he had this large book deal. Hmm. So what's next? Well, there's going to be a hearing on February 26th, although that could get pushed back. And so a judge will rule on whether or not he can, in fact, continue to use the money that he's making through writing and publishing to support his family or whether that money should go to the state of Michigan. And they are trying to claim 90 percent of it. You know, I spoke to a lot of legal experts and other people who have studied prison literature. And while this happens to be related to a larger set of laws that, you know, exist around the country that allow states to force prisoners to pay for their own incarceration, and those laws have proliferated. Some see this as tied into other efforts that states have made to kind of prevent prisoners from getting paid for their writing in particular. There have been other efforts to kind of limit what prisoners can make through their art or through their writing. There were, of course, the Son of Sam laws, which prevent prisoners and criminals from making money from nonfiction accounts that recount their crimes or selling their life rights or getting movie deals. And that was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, but it has persisted in various forms. In Mr. Dawkins' case, he's writing fiction, so the Son of Sam rules don't apply. But it's interesting to see that, you know, the book deal did catch the attention of Michigan's attorney general, probably because of some of the publicity that it got, and they are taking action against him. Very, very complicated story. All right, Alexander, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
This is John Williams, and I'm here with my colleagues, Tina Jordan, Emily Aiken, and Gal Beckerman to talk about what we're reading this week. Emily and I are going to have our own little private book club in a minute. So let's start with Tina. Wait, your, your own private well, book see, club? Okay, see. fine. Yeah, yeah. So I read Mrs. by Caitlin Macy, which came out, I think, about a week ago. I was curious about it because everyone's like, oh, it's Big Little Lies meets Gossip Girl. And I'm like, well, I liked Big Little Lies. And I'm here to tell you, I, I don't think it was Big Little Lies, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's sort of set, you know, it's one of those pedigree and privilege novels. That's what I call them. Um, set on the Upper East Side, um, a group of of women whose kids all go to the most exclusive preschool in Manhattan, and there's drama. And it's got that Greek chorusy feeling of Big Little Lies where you're hearing from a lot of different people, mm-hmm. and in fact, a kid as well. But the basic plot is this. So there's an old money family, there's a new money family, and then there's like a family that's there on scholarship, and the dad is working in the DA's office, and he's investigating the men Something. in the other families, oh. right? So there's mm. there's been financial misbehavior. Has there? Yes. In Manhattan? In Manhattan. I, mean, I don't know. But That's, anyway, clothes, jewels, limos, nannies. So you get like, all the sociology. Yes. Okay. Like if that's your thing, I mean, I can't imagine living in that world mm-hmm. because it looks so scary. I mean, these women are all like they have stilettos and pointy nails and like if you picked them up and threw them in a wall, they'd stick. Like they're frightening. <laughs> It's so, keeping up with the Joneses on steroids, too, yes, right? I mean, the is. expectations and the pressures. And so I ripped right through it. It sounds very adaptable. Were you casting it in your head as you read it? It's completely adaptable, and I'm pretty sure that it's been optioned. Swept I should know that, but I don't, yeah. Yeah. Gal, are, are you reading something movie-ready? Not really. <laughs> uh, <I've> been, <laughs> um, it's pretty internal dialogue, so it, I okay. can't imagine. Uh, well, not well. I'll explain. Um, it's David Grossman's uh, "Horse Walks Into a Bar," which I've been meaning to read for about a year. Oh, I've been meaning to read it in Hebrew. There's a long list of books that I keep telling myself that I'll get to, <laughs> and that I don't, because it takes me just a little bit longer to read. So, anyways, I picked this one up. Also, uh, Jessica Cohen, who's the premier translator of of Hebrew literature, did this one too. So, David Grossman is maybe our listeners will know, is like one of this triumvirate of like Israeli novelists who are, because Israel's so young, they're both the canon and the like top guys in the in the field at the moment. That's uh, Amos Oz, David and Grossman. Grossman's a sort of moral conscience in a way. Right, yeah, right, right. Exactly. And A.B. Yoshua. But it, this is an unusual book for David Grossman, who's, you know, writes these very you know, especially his last book, The End of the Land, very deep dealing with like big moral and ethical issues. And this book, the entirety of it is a man doing stand up. I mean, it ends up turning tragic. Like it's not just old. (laughs) It's not by the end you're like going to cry, you know, but it's but it's part of the joy of reading this book. And there's some novels that are like this is just the, the, the you just marvel at the technical ability of of the novelist to sustain this. You know, mm-hmm. I started reading it and I was like, can he really do this for 200 pages? Is he really going to have an entire novel that's just a guy walking on a stage and doing a set, a two-hour set? And that's, in fact, what it is. But in the course of that set, this guy, Dovala G is his, is his name, he, who's doing this, it's like a small club in a very kind of post-industrial town, uh, Netanya, on, on the coast in Israel. He kind of like, falls apart and he ends up telling stories from his life in a way that reveals the kind of trauma that's at the center of his 
existence. But it's not all in his voice. I mean, it, when we're not hearing the actual stand-up, right. is it third person with Grossman telling us about him, or are we inside it's his thir- It's third person from the perspective of his childhood friend who he's invited to 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 witness this set. So he's... And, and you get clues as you go along that he sees this as kind of his a last his last kind of testament, you know, that, that he's going to, like, just break it down completely and tell you about the deepest truths of his life. And he wants this guy who he hasn't seen, who became a judge, but he hasn't seen since they were childhood friends, to witness this and then and then tell him something deep about himself afterwards. And so you kind of get that. So as you're shifting from the perspective. Happening. You get a lot of him just doing his shtick, including... I didn't think Grossman was capable of being this like funny. You know, it's actually there's a lot of He's a very jokes. earnest writer. He's a very earnest writer. <laughs> and you wonder kind of how he because I know that this is not natural, it's not like reading Gary Steingart or something where like he's just a funny person. <laughs> um like how he patched this together. But it remind I mean the closest thing it reminded me of was was Portnoy's complaint and that it's kind of this sustained rant, sustained, you know, just kind of internal monologue just kind of going on and on and on. The only thing I'm thinking about in in relation to it are those great Lenny Bruce passages from Underworld by Don DeLillo. Yeah. Also, the Tignataro, that's what's coming to my mind. Do you know that Mm -hmm. comic riff where she just got up and talked about her cancer for two hours? Right. No, okay, so it's totally in that vein, you know, where it's like tragic. It's like supposed, it's like funny, but then quickly it turns in this way where you're like, suddenly I'm not feeling funny anymore, you know? (laughs) Yeah. um, But it's amazing that he gets it in writing because it's so, like the, the risk level is so high. Like if you're, you know, for a writer to actually write stand up, you know, in a book, a stand up is so contingent on you know, lots of factors of the, the 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 chemistry, the persona that the person's putting across. So body so to, language, body language is to get all the that, audience yeah, the that audience. he's responding to. So mm-hmm. I was just like, OK, he's going to he's going to try to do these. You know, he's at the top of his field and he just wants a challenge for himself. And this is That's he just great. he pulled it off. And Grossman, I should add, just won the um, the Israel Prize, which is like Israel's kind of high it's like the what, what do we what do we have here like that medal of honor thank yeah. you he won that and then i i think he won the international booker for for this uh for this as well so well i i recommend it as does the rest of the international audience and heads of state well tina and and you were reading things that are very current emily and i are going to take you back to the 19th century <laughs> I was reading, last time we came on the show i was reading uh, i had just finished the portrait of a lady by henry james and so in the mood for more james but knowing that many of his books are huge commitments. And I wanted something a little bit lighter. I went to Washington Square, which is one of his earlier novels and is, by his standards, relatively quick and easy to read about uh, a doctor in New York whose who's plain daughter is courted by a, who the father sees as a ne'er-do-well who has no money of his own and he thinks is fortune hunting. Um, and that's the, the drama of the book. And it's like I said, the port- about the portrait of a lady, it's a it's a great Henry James novel. So I'm not sure how much I can add to the discourse about it. But the other thing that I'm reading simultaneously because I loved Portrait of a Lady so much is Portrait of a Novel by Michael Gora, which is a book that came out in 2009. I thought it was like two years ago, but time is flying. <laughs> um, which is essentially a a work of history and literary criticism just about the portrait of a lady, both James's influences, the way he put the book together, where he was when he was writing certain things. And um, I'm about a third of the way through it. And it's very smart, very readable. And I definitely think even if you haven't read Portrait recently, I think it's worth worth picking up. And so 
on the theme of Portrait of a Lady. Uh, Emily, what are you reading? I'm reading Mrs. Osmond by John Banville, which is, believe it or not, a sequel to Portrait of a Lady. A long-awaited sequel. A long-awaited. <laughs> and maybe we should start by reminding people about Portrait of a Lady itself. Mm-hmm. Why, why do this? Why write a sequel to this novel? And of course, Portrait of a Lady is one of James's great early novels, but it's also famously one of his most ambiguous It's the story of this young, uh, spirited American girl, Isabel Archer, who is an orphan at 21 and is taken to Europe by her aunt, who happens to be married to a wealthy Englishman. And adventures ensue. She is courted by several gentlemen and turns down uh, several proposals of marriage. Very eligible gentlemen. Eligible gentlemen who pursue her, one, all the way from the United States, (laughs) and to uh, the horror of most of the other characters in the novel and to the readers, she accepts (laughs) a proposal from this sinister and morally dubious man, also an expatriate, (laughs) living in Rome, Gilbert Osmond. It turns out that he doesn't love her, that the marriage has been engineered by him and his former lover, who's also, it turns out, the mother of his child. <laughs> we need and, a soap opera soundtrack yeah. at this moment. Wait, this is in the sequel or this is in This is all Portugal? in this is Portugal, 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 believe it or not. Um, a lot goes on in that novel. A lot goes on. It's funny because um, having come to Portrait so late, um, I think spoiler alerts aren't really... Yeah. relevant for books 200 years old, but I was kind of upset that I finally got around to reading Portrait. And then the title of Banville's novel, which of course I was aware of working at the book review, right. is, a, <laughs> is a giant spoiler. So I sort of knew <laughs> how it was going to end even as I was reading it. Okay, this is a first, like 200-year-old spoiler yes. alert stop. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, angry. But, the, but the, question, the question that's left hanging at the end of the novel is, what will Mrs. Osmond do, having married this man and discovered yes. his moral corruption and that she's actually entrapped? Uh, a young woman who went to Europe with ideas about freedom and independence finds herself fallen into a, a, a trap. Um, she, is, she hightails it to England to the deathbed of her cousin who's dying of tuberculosis. Um, and the novel ends on this ambiguous note. What will she do? Apparently, she's going to return to Rome, but we don't know to what end. The, the cousin, I think, along with Isabel, is one of the great characters in in any book I've ever read. He's so terrific. But I, I have to say, you're definitely in the majority. Of, I've read a lot of things about the book now, and I did not feel the ambiguity at the end. I felt like she had just accepted her fate and in sort of leaving again because she there's another scene at the very end of the novel where yet another quarter comes back and she well, has an very, opportunity. It's very interesting what he says, right? This is Casper Goodwood. <laughs> he says to her, I told you this he was hasn't given up. I mean, when he learns that she's in England, he thinks maybe, maybe I'll have another chance at her. Maybe she'll leave Gilbert Osmond. And he says, you must save what you can of your life. He says that to mm-hmm. her. And I think readers hearing that yes. question wonder what will she do how will she even if she returns to rome and and the trap of her marriage what what how what will she make of so it so what banville's done is i would say one of the gutsiest things that anyone's ever attempted which is to write a sequel to this incredible classic talk about so how like that, novelists who are like yeah. the top of their they're yeah. like what's the next challenge i can <laughs> i mean <laughs> he's mastered writing there. thrillers right, <laughs> right. under <laughs> another name yeah. so now right right so now he's essentially impersonating henry james and it's a remarkable feat to my mind he really does pull it off I and mean, mm. he's achieved the impossible he's imitated the inimitable a style of James. I mean, the world prose, the sentences. I do detect some more directness on the sort of famous elusiveness um, is is somehow there and not there. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we, uh, we actually get inside, uh, Gilbert Osmond's head at one point. There's a kind of bravura section in the middle where I, I made a note in the margin, vile. I mean, Gilbert Osmond's <laughs> small teeth, his mannerisms, even the jaded way that he stands. I mean, he's, he basically comes off as a kind of fantasy Hannibal Lecter. And, 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 you know, he recalls squeezing his sister's arm as a child so hard that she cried, um, it's it's just it's a pure it's just evil. A, it, yeah, he's pure <laughs> evil, and it's and Banville's just having wonderful fun. I mean, there there are lots of little goodies for James aficionados in the yeah. book. Are I, you done with it? Although either I'm way, I, I don't think we should obviously spoil this. I'm because not. It's one thing to spoil a book from the 1800s. I I heard Banville sp- read from it, and he read a section in which he actually puts James in the book itself. Did you get? I'm not. Like that? If that happens, that that sounds like an extraordinary feat—not okay. just of impersonation, but of like rehabilitation. Sort of from an Alfred Hitchcock-like <laughs> stroll across the page. No, it's, it was something like so, that. It was like he okay. was sitting at well, a Emily, table. Well, Emily, I think I think we're going to have to have you back. Yeah. this was quite a maiden voyage. We'll have yeah, to have you back. Definitely, I want to hear part two. Of this. Thanks, everybody. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.